what is your killer strategy? The one that gives your business the ultimate bulletproof competitive advantage. Welcome to Your Advantage Play with your host, Joel Block. Former professional blackjack player and card counter who left Las Vegas and spent his life in that giant casino on Wall Street in the hedge fund and venture capital businesses. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. We feel it in our bones that the Fed, the government, and the boatloads of economists that flood our halls of, uh, of the country have taken this economy in a direction that's just not working for many of the medium-sized businesses in our country. Is it so? Have they gotten it wrong? To address this and more, Paul Schotten. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Joel. Pleased to be here. So you are uh, quite an interesting person, and uh, I, I think we're going to have a, a lot to talk about. So uh, just right up front, uh, you know, with all the interest rate issues and the changes in the economy and everything else, has the Fed gotten this right or wrong? What, what is your uh, summary explanation? I think the Fed's been wrong for a very long time, at least since the time of Alan Greenspan. The Fed developed a, a policy of uh, cutting interest rates whenever the financial markets, in particular the stock market, got into difficulties. So it started really with the with the stock market crash of October 1987. Stocks fell by about 20 standard deviations. Greenspan cut rates, flooded the market with liquidity. And in subsequent uh, financial crises, especially stock weaknesses, there was a tendency of the Fed to cut rates, flood the markets with liquidity to protect the banking system. But there was uh, they never did the opposite on the on the upside. When markets were very strong, Greenspan would job on the markets. He would talk about irrational exuberance, but they didn't raise rates to damp down the economy uh, symmetrically. So this asymmetric policy response, the, the Fed only ever bailed out the markets by cutting rates, conditioned market players to believe that the Fed would always have the markets back, and the Fed always ran uh, interest rate policy, monetary policy too low. They also um, conflated asset price deflation with deflation, the price of goods and services. So asset price deflation is very dangerous. It was what uh, was a big problem in the time of the, of the Great Depression in the 1930s because farmers had borrowed against their land holdings. Stock speculators had borrowed money to buy stocks on margin. And when asset prices start to start to fall, you know, confidence starts to leave the, leave the economy, asset prices start to fall, banks would foreclose on the loan on the loans to farmers. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the brokerage firms uh, would sell stocks to, to unwind the margin loans. And that could cause a cascading down of prices and was extremely bad. And central banks, understandably, want to avoid that wanted to avoid that problem in the, in the future. And that's why we have an inflation target of 2%. But that inflation target, the Fed completely misunderstands that there's a difference between asset price deflation and deflation prices of goods and services. And the in the absence of government intervention, the natural trend of prices in goods and services would be down. Because despite the fact that you've got pr upwards pressure on prices caused by an increasing global population, uh, human ingenuity means that people are better able to use resources, use them more efficiently. Uh, com uh, capitalism gives rise to more, it, more uh, competition between companies to use resources more efficiently and recycle them more efficiently. So that means that the long-term uh, trend of prices in goods and services, things like televisions, cars, computers, and so on, the long-term trend is down. We should not have a 2% 
uh, target for the prices of uh, goods and service inflation. But because the Fed misunderstands this difference between asset prices and consumer prices, it mistakenly targeted a 2% level for consumer price inflation. It therefore ran interest rates at a too lower level uh, to, to run the economy too hot to try to generate consumer price inflation. In the course of doing that, they brought about the very thing they should care about the most, because by running interest rates too low, that causes speculators to buy pre-existing assets, buy real estate, buy stocks, buy crypto, buy meme stocks, buy NFTs, all of this stuff. A, a bubble was created in the price of all of this stuff because the price of money, interest rates, are set by the Fed, was too low. And of course, when you get an inflation, a bubble in asset prices, that's the best way when that bubble eventually bursts to give rise to asset price deflation, the very thing that the Fed should care about the most. All right. Let's, you've talked about a lot of different things. Let's break a couple of these things down. Number one, uh, you talked about uh, population increase. You talked about that there are some fundamental things that are happening in the world that cause prices to slightly creep up over time. That just value goes up because there's more people, more services, more productivity. Uh, you know, let's so the inflation that we have right now in our society is it a result? of monetary policy, or do you think it's coming from somewhere else? And I have a pretty strong opinion about this, but I'm interested to hear what yeah. you have to say. Well, there are various things uh, going on. So there's no question that the pandemic gave rise to shortages. Uh, companies had, grow had, grown had refined their supply chains. They got used to just-in-time delivery of the key inputs into their, into their products by refining their supply chains. And uh, supply chain efficiency comes at the price of a, a loss of resilience. Resilience and efficiency are opposite sides of the same coin. So in refining supply chains, just-in-time delivery of goods and services, that got completely disrupted by uh, the pandemic and uh, meant that a lot, of, a lot of inputs into products that we need in the States coming from China and Southeast Asia could no longer be delivered. And that caused a short-term spike in, in the prices of goods and services. But the cure for high prices is high prices, because high prices cause more people to come into the market, more people to uh, to supply those missing goods and services. And so eventually, after a short spike, those prices would would come back down. Um, the so that's uh, the the long term trend in price of of goods and services actually is down because despite the fact that you've got increasing population, increasing demand for these things, human ingenuity. And co competition between companies in a capitalist economy use those goods and services, you know, those inputs into the product. So in inputs from things like oil and raw materials and, and metals and steel and things like that. We use those things far more efficiently today than they were used in the in the past. So technical innovations and improvements give rise to a long-term downward trend in the, in the prices of goods that aren't constrained by regulation or government activity. The prices of those things which are so con so constrained, so things like healthcare and education, where there's government regulations around them, government regulation tends to act against competitive pressures and the adoption of technology to improve those features. That's why uh, that's one of the reasons why prices of education and healthcare continue to increase. And those kinds of those kinds of products 
in, in, which are also con contributes to inflation, those kinds of products increase in price a lot. But those where the, the government doesn't have uh, regulation, doesn't administer that. So things like com computers, television sets, refrigerators, uh, things like that, cars, the long-term trend is improved quality of product and a, d a decrease in price. Interesting. So, um, so the uh, the government uh, regulation actually props prices higher, and lack of regulation causes more competition, which makes it go lower. And and I think all yeah. of us would agree with that. Tell us about uh, inflation as it relates to uh, labor and the labor markets, because I, I, it seems to me that uh, shortages of labor is causing a lot of the, co the these costs to go higher. So, tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Well, the um, Paul Volcker, who was chairman of the Fed. Uh, in the in the 1980s, was brought in by uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, Volcker was is famous for having killed inflation in the United States by pushing interest rates up to, to very high levels. Uh, but uh, Volk and and since around since around that time, central banks around the world have largely been given responsibility for the management of monetary policy. Monetary, monetary policy was taken out of the hands of governments because politicians were thought to have cause to manipulate interest rates in order to manipulate the economic cycle to line up with their desire to get re-elected. And so it was thought to be better to give control of monetary policy to control inflation to in, uh, independent technocrats in the central banks. But I think as, mu as much as uh, Paul Volcker deserves some of the credit for bringing down inflation, he doesn't deserve it all because there were other things going on as well in, in the uh, 1980s and 1990s, not least of which was the entrance into the global labor market of uh, cheap labor from China and other countries in Southeast Asia. There were more women coming into the labor force. You had the reforms of trade unions by Ronald Reagan in the United States and uh, around the same time by Margaret Thatcher in the United Kingdom. And that curbing of the power of trades unions uh, really weakened the hand of labor to argue for uh, higher compensation for labor prices. So you saw a swing in much of the of the fruits of uh, of capitalism and economic production going to capital and less being trans, uh, transferred to labor now with the pandemic a lot of people having left the workforce the hand of labor in in, in its bargaining power has increased and you know quite a lot because of a shortage of workers so the hand of labor is stronger now and to the extent that prices are higher labor has economic power to argue for higher wages and companies need to pay those higher wages in order to attract and, and keep the good workers that they've got that can become embedded in in inflation over time but that's a very recent thing as a result of the uh, of the coronavirus pandemic we haven't seen that in the, you know nearly 40 years so don't you think that um a lot of the inflation that uh, we have in the economy is based on the, the imbalance of supply and demand of labor. I mean, isn't that, isn't that, and, and even on supply and demand of other products too. I mean, don't you think that's where a big part of this is coming from? And how is it that interest rates are going to solve that problem? Uh, a lot of the time that they can't. I mean, there's no way that the Fed through increasing interest rates can uh, unkink the supply chains to the extent that that is, that is still a problem. I mean, much of that has been unwound now as, as the, the pandemic has, has largely disappeared in, and, and removed from the problem. Uh, but changing interest rates, the, the only way that increasing interest rates uh, can can fix those kinds of problems is effectively by crushing the, crushing the economy, weakening the economy, uh, causing uh, companies to weaken and lay off workers. Uh, and that obviously increases the, the relative supply of labor, increases it, uh, decreases its price. 
And that's the only action that the Fed can have. But the fundamental problems, given that they were caused by supply chain bottlenecks, had got nothing to do with 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 interest rates and the Fed's ability to change them. So I think the Fed has relatively little ability to influence that, other than by deliberately weakening the economy at the risk of driving it into a recession. Which is which is more or less what's happened, right? That yeah. the uh, the Fed has weakened the economy. Uh, now, why yeah. wasn't it as bad? as the media portrayed. You know, this I concept think, of the soft landing, I don't think they engineered the soft landing. I think they're getting a little bit lucky because the economy is just not going the way that they want. So yeah. tell us a little bit about what this soft landing thing is about. Well, the the, the Fed was late uh, to raise interest rates. And having been late, uh, it then did too much. So the, the, the Fed always tends to do either too little too late or too much too late, but whatever it does, it's too late. And it was late for a couple of reasons. W one was this a, this asymmetric bias of uh, wanting to run the economy hot because inflation had been below the 2% target for an extended period of time. So they deliberately wanted to run the economy hot to kind of catch up to where the price level would have been had inflation not been below the target for an extended period. So that was one element. A second element was they thought that inflation, they genuinely thought that inflation was transitory due to uh, when the pandemic first hit, prices of lots of things collapsed as demand disappeared. And so you it, a year later, you had base level effects, which they thought meant that much of the increase in prices, much of that what was feeding through inflation was in fact transitory and it would go away on its own. So, th so they, they misunderstood that. And the final thing that was that uh, Jay Powell, when he was brought in as Fed chairman by, by Donald Trump, uh, Powell was, was leaned upon by President Trump to keep rates low at a time when probably of his own volition, he would want to increase them. So ostensibly, the Fed is independent and individual members of the Board of, Board of Governors are independent. But as an institution, it is much less independent than superficially you, you, you would think. It can be leaned upon by, by presidents, for example. And then when President Biden came in in 2020, the uh, Jay Powell's first term always comes to an end during the start of an incoming president's term. Jay Powell wanted to be renominated for a second term as Fed chairman, and so he too was late on, uh, late to increase rates under President Biden to secure his renomination for the post. So for these various reasons, the Fed was very late to move. And then, having been so late, they realised that the genie of inflation was well and truly out of the bottle. And it's going to be difficult to stuff back in, and as a result, they then moved rates very, very aggressively indeed, more aggressively probably than was necessary because they were late to start. All right, look, um, we'll, we'll talk about a couple other topics too, but maybe the most important thing that our listeners are concerned about, how does all of this affect their business? How do they predict what's about to happen? Where's the economy going from here? What are your thoughts? I mean, do you have any, uh, any and by the way, uh, you know, the audience should know that uh, you, you were a bond trader for Goldman Sachs and uh, you, you've got an illustrious career, uh, you know, both as a businessman, as an academic and so forth. Uh, where do you think this economy is going and how should people start preparing themselves? The, the, the first thing I should say is that making predictions is extremely difficult, especially about the future. And anyone, given the, <laughs> given the complexity of the environment that we're operating in, no one can have a great confidence in in making forecasts because the the the, the mark, financial markets are just too good at completely confounding expectations. So an example of that would be with interest rates having risen as large as much as they have and mortgage rates having risen as much as they have on the back of interest rate increases people would have expected that that would crater the residential real estate market 
that hasn't happened. Why not? Well, it, it's not happened because all of those people who had mortgages at very low rates decided that they didn't want to move unless there was some absolutely compelling reason they wouldn't move house. They're staying in their old house to keep their low, very attractive mortgage rate. As a result, a lot inventory has completely disappeared from the residential real estate market and prices of, of real estate have remained high, if not gone up. That's ex post. You can explain what happened and you can see why that happened. But predicting ex ante that that would happen is extremely difficult. I don't know anybody who uh, forecast that that would happen. So the, th the first thing I would say is, I I'll give you my view on the economy, but, but take it with a grain of salt. I have very low confidence in anybody's ability to predict anything, to be perfectly... You know, before, before you make the prediction, yeah, uh, you know, there's a, uh, there's a supply and demand imbalance between the number of housing units available and the amount of people that want to buy houses. So not Absolutely. only... Are people not selling so you have that uh, very short amount of supply but there's just in general the economy doesn't have enough housing stock because 10 years ago builders didn't build and yeah. on the on the heels of the uh the crash that happened in 07 08 09 so yeah. uh it's not yeah, but entirely... builders didn't build because of that experience and, and also builders didn't build because People who are all, all who already own houses in communities tend to suffer from the NIMBY or not in my backyard problem. They want to protect the value of their houses and they don't want uh, new, especially lower cost houses, the kind of houses which newly forming households, millennials want to buy uh, uh, young couples or young couples about to have their first child want to buy smaller starter homes. A lot of uh, homeowners in established communities don't want that kind of house to be built. So they elect politicians who will uh, who, who will make sure that they're in place. There are zoning laws to prevent that kind of thing, to protect their own uh, to, their their investment that they've already made in the house that they already own. So there are lots of forces giving rise to a shortage of supply of homes at a time when there's growing demand because of millennials wanting to to move out of rental accommodation into into new houses. So lots of things driving that imbalance between supply and demand in uh, in real estate. Yeah. All right. So now, so how should business people uh, proceed? I mean, given that it's very difficult to know what uh, what to do next, what are your suggestions? Yeah. Well, I think a, a business person with, with good ideas should uh, always plow ahead, almost uh, irrespective of the economic backdrop. The, the, the Fed will do what it, it'll do. The, the you know, markets will do what they will do. But if you have you know, a good business idea, and uh, and you and some capital to put behind it, and prepared to uh, you know to work hard at that idea. Uh, that that's the that's the bedrock of America's uh, success. So I, I would never be in t in terms of starting a new business. I would never be discouraged by uh, the economic environment. I mean, clearly, what the Fed does in terms of interest rates can create uh, economic headwinds or, or or tailwinds, and it seems to be headwinds at the moment in terms of high interest rates. But if you've got a good idea. Uh, people will will find money to buy it. If you've got good products, we provide good services. People will want those good services and and want those products in the same way that they that they always have. So business people should uh, should largely ignore what's ignore the nonsense and shenanigans in uh, in Washington D.C. They should largely ignore what the Fed is doing and proceed with their with their ideas. So you don't think that. Um... That in spite of the interest rates, in spite of all the different difficulties that uh, people are dealing with, that we really are facing the kind of uh, complexities or the kind of uh, uh, nervousness that uh, you know is, is being portrayed. You don't think that that's warranted for most people? Um, 
I, I don't th I don't think so. No, I, I suspect that the Fed, maybe more by luck than by judgment, is likely to engineer uh, a, a soft landing. I know more uh, more economists who have predicted uh, recessions and are now withdrawing those predictions. Uh, I, I think that's that's probably right. That there may well be another increase, a uh, rate increase this year, but that probably is the last one. We we'll probably see rates peak and start to come down in 2024. That's that's what I expect. I, I think that the Fed has been lucky in engineering uh, a relatively soft landing for the uh, you know for, for for the economy. A rather bigger problem in the backdrop, however, is the the government debt to, to GDP ratio, which now sits at a level of something like one hundred twenty percent, one hundred twenty seven percent. Government debt is far too high. Politicians for far too long have said deficits don't matter, and they've they've kicked the can down the road, hoping that the problems, the chickens will only come home to roost on somebody else's watch in the future and that they'll get away with it for the time of that tenure. But the the the, the, the times, uh, our ability to do that is getting less and less. We're getting more and more constrained. And that debt will have to be dealt with at some point. And none of the ways of dealing with it, whether it's by inflation, whether it's by uh, default or repudiation, uh, none of the ways of dealing with it are good. We should not have allowed ourselves to get into the bad position with the government deficit that we have. But here, here's where we are. Here's where we need to deal with. But that government debt is acting as a drag on ec economic growth, and it will continue to do so for some time. Ideally, the, the best way to deal with it would be through through growth, uh, grow GDP fast. I mean, because the, the the notional, the nominal level of the debt is is fixed in dollar terms. If you grow the economy rapidly, increase GDP, then you can decrease the debt to GDP ratio by virtue of the of the denominator, the GDP increasing. But because the debt level is already so high, and and uh, government revenue, so taxpayers' revenues going to fund the interest payments on that debt, that's get, get taking a bigger and bigger portion of the uh, of the national product. Uh, that acts as an economic drag, and it will continue to do so. It will be very hard to grow the economy fast enough to be able to escape that kind of uh, trap in, in the way that the, the country did after the Second World War, which is the last time that the debt-to-GDP ratio rose uh, to the kind of levels it is now to, to fund the war effort. You know, one of the things that... Uh that I notice uh, frequently is that uh, as much as we borrowed money for the last 15 or 20 years, uh, classic economic theory would have said there would have been a lot of inflation because we were diluting the capital and, you know, with the whole thing. And that didn't really happen. But I think part of why it didn't happen is because the cost of the money was so low. The cost to borrow capital was so low at that time that um, the cost of the $31 trillion that we have now uh, was very low. But as interest rates go higher, the cost to carry the debt gets higher. And I think that the drag on the economy yeah. is going to get worse. And I think that's the monster that's going to raise its ugly head. Yeah. There's another element there too. And that is that uh, G notional GDP, there's, there's um, uh, it's known as the equation of exchange. Its philosophy goes back a very long way to a Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, David Hume, further expanded upon by another philosopher from the uh, early 19th century, John Stuart Mill. And in its modern form, it was described by a great American uh, economist, Irving Fisher, a great economist of the 1920s. And that is that notional GDP is equal to the magnitude of the monetary supply multiplied by monetary velocity, or the rate at which money cycles through the economy. And a, a lot, um, Milton Friedman famously said, 
uh, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon because he was looking at this equation, looking at the big increase in money supply and saying that's going to feed the, the increase in money supply, which isn't matched by increase in productivity of goods and services, goes to do increase in the price level, in other words, inflation. And it, when he said that, he was ignoring the impact of monetary velocity, V. And he did that because most of the period of his research in the 1960s and early 1970s, V was flat. But if you look at a longer-term trend of V, you'll see that after he retired from his academic work, V increased very sharply until the time of the Asian crisis in 1997. And it hit a peak in 1997, and it then collapsed for the next 25 years. And it hit an all-time low below the previous all-time low, which is in 1946 in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. And uh, this, this monetary velocity, or rate at which money recycles through the economy, is why the collapse on that level is why, despite the fact that the central bank was shoveling money into the economy, growing M as fast as it could, the decline in the monetary velocity more than offset the increase in the money supply, which is why the product of the two, M times V, did not, did not grow. And that's why, or didn't grow much, and that's why inflation never took off. The problem is that now, if you look at uh, the, the, uh, the monetary velocity, uh, you see that it has, in fact, bottomed and it started to, to pick up. Uh, and now that monetary velocity is picking up, if that money is not with the M, if that's, uh, that excess of money supply is not withdrawn from the economy with a, a very high M and now increasing V, you will indeed start to see more inflation. And, and that's, what we've, uh, that's what we've happened. That's what we've seen happening recently. Yeah. Hey, let's just uh, let's get um, kind of. I want there's one last thing I want to cover. Uh, we, we could go on for a long time, but uh, when we were talking, you said that um, you know the theory of a butterfly flaps its wings in Asia and causes a, a hurricane in the, in the Atlantic. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about cause and effect, about how some of these things are connected together, and because uh, I know you've got a book that talks a lot about these kinds yeah. of things. How does the cause and effect of one thing dramatically affect another thing? And, and how do we know if they're yeah. dependent or independent and all the different components? Yeah, I, this is described in my book called Doom to Fail, which comes out in mid-August. And the, the point that I make is that human society, because humans have individual agency, they act in a, in a way uh, of what is known in, in mathematics or in, in science as a complex adaptive system. Complex adaptive systems are deeply interconnected in the various components of the system, and they are highly nonlinear. They obey power laws. So these are not the kind of systems that you're normally used to dealing with, where a, sim you expect a, a simple linear system, you make a small change in the input, gives rise to a small change in the output. Because these systems are obey power laws, a small change in the input gives rise to a, a huge impact on the output. And that's this issue of you know, a small thing like the butterfly flapping its wings can cause a hurricane to form somewhere else. That's how that uh, transmission mechanism works. And the, uh, a classic technique of Stoic philosophers of taking a complicated problem, dividing it into its component parts and getting experts to solve each of the components and then reconstituting the whole, that will work for problems which are merely complicated, but it will not work for problems which are complex because the interconnection between the different components of the system are far too deeply bound together to allow the separation to take place. So a lot of the techniques that we use of having experts advise on particular things don't work because the, 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 the realm of things that we're dealing with, the realm of things that the government is dealing with, the political leaders are dealing with, involve far too many uh, complex interacting elements. The 
there are four complex adaptive systems which have been in crisis in the world in the last few years. One's been the state of the political framework. One's been the state of the economic framework since the global financial crisis of 15 years ago. One has been uh, the, pa the global pandemic, which hit in, two in 2020. And the fourth one has been a slow burning problem with global climate change. Each of these things is a complex adaptive system in itself. And they also interact with each other. So for example, a classic example is when, when the pandemic hit, the medical experts were saying, oh, you've got to you know, uh, shut down the economy, you've got to stop people interact, stop people meeting, everybody shelter at home, wear, you know, wear masks, don't go out to restaurants and so on. And the, in order to address the, the healthcare concerns of the pandemic, and economists were saying, oh my God, you can't do that. If you do that, you'll crush the economy. So the, these kinds of interactions where experts advising on one system, oblivious of the impact that that will have on, a, on some other system where they don't have any expertise, this kind of problem of interconnected systems is entirely typical of complex adaptive systems. This is the world in which we need to operate. This is why fundamentally the future is unknowable or why making predictions is so difficult because of these complexities of the, of the, and the underlying relationships, the nonlinearity of the systems and the fact that the systems adapt and change and morph over time in ways that are fundamentally impossible to predict. You know, I, I just I find this uh, tremendously fascinating, and and I uh, I wish we had even a little more time, but I, I will tell you that uh, on our show, uh, your advantage player, uh, you know, what's really critical about this is that we're looking for killer strategies, and what you have really pointed out is that everybody kind of looks at uh, a strategy uh, sometimes through their own lens to the exclusion of the many other lenses that other people have and that are required. And probably the advantage players, the really great advantage players, look at these plays uh, through many different perspectives. Because by looking at it through just one perspective, uh, you miss out on all the other things. And, and that really, uh, I think that that's your advantage play, is your ability to look at things through many different perspectives. And I think that if there's anything that I take away from this discussion, it's that uh, we have to look at things in lots of different ways. And that is really a uh, a really powerful component. So uh, I appreciate you being on the show. I appreciate you sharing your perspective. And uh, and I appreciate your advantage play of kind of looking at the big picture because that's something that a lot of people don't do. And to me, that makes you an advantage player. And I appreciate you being on our show. Thank you very much for inviting me, Joel. The pleasure was all mine. Well, listen, uh, and hopefully we'll uh, we'll keep you. You'll be a friend of the show and we'll, uh, we'll stay in touch. Thank you very much. I certainly would like to. I enjoyed uh, chatting with you. Very nice. Me too. Thank you. You've been listening to Your Advantage Play with your host, Joel Block. To learn more about how to work with Joel and cultivate your own high limit advantage plays, visit theadvantageplayer.com. Subscribe to Your Advantage Play wherever you get your podcasts.